0: So if you've habitually turned to the book of Acts, turn back one book. After three years and five months, we've finally landed in Rome with the Apostle, and we're through with the book of Acts. We've learned a lot on this journey we've been on together. The ending of the book of Acts, I reminded you last week to a number of commentators Uh, In their view, it ends abruptly, I had pointed out. Uh, One said that it doesn't end, it just stops. And I pointed out that that I don't share that view. I don't share that view simply because that's how Luke writes. When God is done with one character in the book, he just stops writing about them. He stopped writing about Peter John. He stopped writing about others. We don't know what happened to Peter. Not really. After Acts chapter 12, he shows up in a brief occasion at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, but he doesn't write about where he went or what happened to him or anything. It just stops in his regard. So we shouldn't be surprised that it did for Paul. And I don't think it just stops for Paul. I think that he made it to Rome. That was the big, this is the big ending The big ending was him getting finally to Rome. And we saw even go beyond that to where he met with the Jewish leaders and so on. But the reason it seems to me that we see him just stop writing about particular human characters is because that's not the main character of the book of Acts. The main character of the book of Acts, like any book in the Bible, is Jesus Christ. And now as we begin our journey through John's gospel, as they refer to it as the fourth gospel, we'll see him front and center. This book is all about Christ. The Old Testament defines him in detail. The prophecies describe his arrival, predict his arrival. The New Testament, he shows up in the gospels. We see his teaching. We see his crucifixion we see his resurrection he's certainly the main character there it's sort of the pinnacle of the whole of scripture and then in acts we see his ascension and we see the advent of the holy spirit we see the lord building his church the church of jesus christ christ is front and center through the entirety of scriptures. And even in our eschaton, as we look at the eschatological Bible uh, books of the Bible, ending with revelation, Christ is the preeminent main character. And our books just stop, don't they? But does he? Of course not. He is Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, now, and what? forever that's him i can't think of a of a if if you wanted to make that point in the entirety of the 66 books in the bible a better one to go to to really see him rise up off the pages of scripture than in john's gospel there's a lot of coverage i want to this is going to be very informational I like to start each book with uh, an introduction and an overview, just to set the stage and understand who's writing, what they're writing about, give uh, outline suggestions, things like that, and the different topics that are covered in the book. And so today's no exception. We definitely want to do that. So you could summarize it this way. The subject of this book is Jesus Christ, God incarnate. We literally see Christ showing up, or God, the Son of God, showing up in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful time to be reflecting on this as we head toward Christmas. We're going to see the birth. We're going to see him show up. But John's unique. John's different from what we refer to as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is written much later. John is well aware. John, of course, is the human author. Although his name, he never names himself throughout the entire gospel. So he's well aware of the three gospels they've been around a while. He's the last remaining apostle. And so we we can see differences. There's some striking differences, although they're very complementary. There's nothing that is contradictory between the Gospel of John, and the three synoptic Gospels. But there are differences, and we'll look at some of those as we go along. This is Jesus Christ incarnate. And this will be what is emerges as the main theme throughout the entirety, all 21 chapters, this will be the case. He starts out in the very first verse. no in the very first words of the first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, yeah, the Word is God. Who's the Logos? Jesus Christ. The Word was with God, the Word was was God. So, and in chapter 1 verse 45, we see Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law. And also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's an expression that means the entirety of their extant scriptures, their Bible, their scriptures, if you will, at the time, they recognize this is the one who the whole of our scriptures has been anticipating from Moses that gives us a wonderful detailed description of who he is to the prophets who are saying, here's who it is that is coming and this is to whom we should look. So it makes sense to us, doesn't it, that this should be the theme of Paul's preaching? I mean, let's not leave Paul out of this too quickly before we get to John. This is it for Paul. This summarizes the entirety of his gospel ministry, doesn't it? We preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 123. That's it. Chapter 2 and verse 2, 1 Corinthians, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He knew a lot. We discovered that as we went through Acts, studying under Gamaliel. I mean, he was a pharisee of Pharisees. He was a rabbi, he was a teacher. He was extremely gifted, extremely bright. And now he said all of that, Philippians 3, is what? Waste. It means nothing. This is it. This is the primacy of the message right here for Paul. Second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. See, that's his defense book, right? That's where he has to come out because they've been making, the false apostles have been making Uh, false accusations about them, about him and the others. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Galatians 6 and verse 14, Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world means nothing to me. Absolutely nothing. Nothing except for Christ and why he has me here as a living, breathing human being to be his vessel, a recipient of his vessel of mercy. This is it. This is the one-fold exclusive message. Why should that be the case? Well, because this is the anticipated one. So this is the one that for generations they had been expecting, the one they've been teaching about, the prophesying, all the rest. We see in the Old Testament historical narratives, we can see the development genealogically of how he comes about through King David. It's all about him. Ephesians 3, verse 8, Paul writes To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's it. Or the, how about the Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Christ is what we preach. Christ is what we teach. Christ is what we counsel. Christ is ours, and we are His. The entirety of our lives are subsumed in Him. That's why we're here. Jesus Christ is central to all life. Therefore, all life and everything in creation of course because everything in creation that has life has it because of him he is life he is the light and the light was what the life of men why do men need light because they're dead and blind sinners who are dark and the light came And there was life. Life restored, souls reclaimed, souls that belonged to him. Amazing. Let's pause for a moment in prayer. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing here. Lord, help us as we look into these further issues of uh, John and where he is and all the rest, the time frame and Help us to understand that we might have a greater appreciation for what we're about to enter into. In your name we pray, and for your glory's sake, amen. So that means, obviously, that if you get your Christology wrong, you get everything else wrong. Christ, that's why we have as our second purpose up there, as a church, glory of God, the centrality of Christ and the supremacy of Scripture. Because he's central to everything. If we're breathing, if the trees are alive, it's because of him. He brings life and he sustains it. You can see that in the letter to the Hebrews. He upholds all things. It's remarkable. So it makes knowing him through this wonderful revelation that we have of him in this fourth gospel, John's gospel, crucial for us to study and understand. Get this wrong, everything else is off. The attack on the true nature of Christ has been going on. It's been relentless through the generations, as you know. His false views of Jesus Christ in the world hinduism jesus attained god realization and was thus an enlightened guru are you good with that i hope not he was not a savior nor son of god nor did he rise from the dead well if you're going to you know go big or go home just deny it all islam jesus is neither god nor the son of god you know i stood in Inside the Dome of the Rock mosque. The rock from where supposedly Muhammad had ascended. And it says in Arabic up in the dome anyone who says or believes or teaches that Jesus is the Son of God is accursed. So I sang a little song in there. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I just noticed at that moment that the people I was with walked away from me, (laughs) including my wife. (laughs) Buddhism, Jesus was nothing more than an enlightened master. Whatever that is. Judaism, Jesus was not God, nor the Son of God, nor the divine Messiah. His resurrection is denied. They lied about it, remember? They lied about it. False views of Jesus Christ in the quote-unquote Christian cults. Jehovah's Witness, Jesus was created by God billions of years ago. Then also, they also deny the deity of Christ. They don't believe that he is God. That is typically the area that they attack with particular vigor is his deity, that Christ was in fact the Son of God. And that's why John settles that forthwith in his gospel. And we're looking forward to that. Mormonism, Jesus is the spirit brother of Adam and Lucifer. He was created by God who was created by another God and so on and so on and so on. If you get this wrong, it's kind of like the pilot who gets just a little bit wrong on the, would that be the altimeter that gets him right on a steady plane? A little bit off, just a little bit off here in a few miles, you could very well be hitting the side of a mountain, right? So Second John, in John's second epistle, he offers this, Second John verse seven to eleven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If you do not have The Christ of the Scriptures, you do not have God. If you do not have God, you do not have salvation. He goes on in verse 9. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Boy, that sounds mean. Slam the door for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I spent time as a young new Christian in Costa Mesa, California, having hosting two Jehovah's Witnesses over to to debate with them. I was just naive enough then to think that they were actually might be listening. Prayed for them. Tried to face all of their points. It just so happened that our church at the time had a workshop on the Jehovah's Witness and uh, so learned about all of their... The word was a God to them. Starts John's Gospel. Let's just stick in an indefinite article. Off by a centimeter, a millimeter, one little letter, not a word, a letter. And you have not Christ. You don't have the Christ of the Bible. That's how important it is. So the authorship is the Apostle John... Did a lot of digging around to see who affirmed this. Of course, Polycarp, who was actually a disciple of John. He was born in 70 A.D. He was martyred in 156 A.D. So he knew John. He learned from him. He was alive at the time. He was maybe in his 20s or whatever when John was still alive, either on Patmos or in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus for a number of years. Uh, His student... Irenaeus, also in, from 130 to 200 are his dates. He was a disciple of Polycarp. They both affirm that the authorship is John, also Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen. And more recently, in the 19th century, you've got the uh, Greek scholar, Wescott, who affirms it, and the theologian, the respected theologian, Lightfoot, who also affirms that You have to get into some liberal textual critics who try to challenge whether or not John was the human author because he doesn't name, as I said, he doesn't name himself. Matter of fact, he refers himself as how? Yeah. We're going to try to pretend there isn't a pride problem there. <laughs> I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, I thought I was. Anyway. Though John is nowhere named, the internal evidence of his gospel bears it out as well. There's just no question about it. I spent a lot of time digging into what that internal evidence is, and it's pretty clear. So there's no question about that. And there wasn't with the early church fathers either for the second and into the third century. They all pretty much accept his authorship. So we have John 21, 24. So the final chapter, he says in verse 24, right near the end, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So this is an eyewitness. It's the apostle John, brother of James, who was martyred in chapter 12 of Acts. You remember Herod martyred James. He was the, one of the top three apostles, Peter, James, and John. So it was written somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D. They, they bat this around a little bit to exactly when. He probably he died pretty much in 98 A.D. Um, so he was actually uh, sent to the Isle of Patmos under the wicked Emperor Domitian, who sentenced him to banishment out onto the Isle of Patmos. But then he was allowed to come back after Domitian's reign when Nerva came into power that was rescinded, and he came back to Ephesus again and finished his life there. And the extra-biblical historical records show that he died in 98 AD. That would be Eusebius' ecclesiastical history. Great book, by the way just to learn all this kind of historical stuff. It's very helpful. So the major theme of the Scripture, as I've said over and over again, it can't be said enough, is the deity of Jesus Christ. It's the main theme. Because if that gets successfully attacked, diminished, changed, off by a little, you don't have your Savior. You don't have a Savior, as I mentioned. So this is affirmed quite a bit. Therefore, you can expect that then. Since, since that's what gets challenged, John is now, this is several years later from when all the rest were writing. Mark was uh, writing on behalf of Peter in Rome. The Roman, uh, those who were attending the teachings of Peter, uh, re- asked, requested that John Mark, who was sort of his assistant, would be his amanuensis. Or the one who wrote down the things that he was teaching. And so he did that. And then you have the book of Mark. That's John Mark. And then you have, of course, Luke. And you have Matthew. And you know about those fellas. But the deity of Christ is affirmed everywhere. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1, as we pointed out. The word was God. Christ is the Logos. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Hopefully next week we'll finally get to chapter 1, verse 1, (laughs) John the Baptist said, this is the Son of God in chapter 1, verse 34. In another place, he says, behold, The Lamb of God. This is that intermediate figure. This is that leftover from the Old Testament. This is that forerunner who the prophets said would come in Elijah-like manner to announce the coming of the Messiah. He laid it out. This is him. Who is he? He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. And guess what's going to happen on Passover? Well, we know the accusation of the Pharisees itself in chapter 5 and verse 18 where they say this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their view, but he was also even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Oh, the temerity that that would be if it weren't true. He simply proclaims what's true. We sometimes struggle doing that. Simply letting the truth stand on its own merits. Especially in the culture we're in now. You can take your life into your hands doing such things. The claim of Christ himself in chapter 5, verse 20 to 23, chapter 6, chapter 8 chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 17. And we have the declaration from the human author himself in chapter 20, verse 31a, the first half. These are written so that, good, we have a purpose clause. What is the reason so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? You miss that, you don't get that, or you reject that, you miss the whole point of the book. That's a single-fold purpose. So I've got a couple lists for you. I've got an outline here for you, a couple of outlines, and I've got some lists. Don't, you may not want to try to um, write it all down. You can get the uh, outline from us or online if you want to. But I wanted you to have this information. So here's seven miracles that were performed to verify the Messiah as the Son of God. Here's seven of them in John's Gospel. First of all, turning the water into wine, chapter 2. Secondly, healing the official's son, chapter 4. Third, healing the lame man, chapter 5. Three, healing the lame man. Four, feeding the multitude in chapter 6. And also in chapter 6, number 5, walking on water. That ought to do it, yeah. Oh, but we can, be, we can be fussy. They always wanted more, didn't they? The Pharisees always. Well, it wasn't quite enough. No man come back from the dead was his point in another place. They will not believe. Because it's woeful. You can turn the whole earth upside down. They'll reject him. Six, healing the blind man in chapter 9. One of my favorite stories. I can't wait to get to it. Seven, raising Lazarus, of course, in chapter 11. So there's also the seven I am statements of the scriptures, right? The seven of them, chapter 6 and verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Chapter 8, verse 12. I am what? The light of the world. Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Bold statements. The ego am I. This is clear declaration all the way through. Miracles and I am statements. How can it be missed? It can't. And when we get to the second point of this gospel, you'll see why. So it's very clear. Chapter 10, verse 9 and verse 11. I am the door. Everyone who enters by me will be saved. And they will go in and go out and find pasture. You'll be saved. You'll be safe. You'll be fed. You won't be hungry anymore. You'll no longer thirst. This quenches all the insatiability of the heart-starved human being. And you love verse 11, don't you? I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But then you get chapter 11 with Lazarus, right? Verse 25 and 26. Talking to Martha. Because she's beside herself. She's all worked up. He's dead and she doesn't get that. Well, I know he'll be resurrected. What is this? Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me, though he die, yet will he live. And everyone who lives, watch this, and believes in me shall never die. And then that all-important question to all of humanity that ever lived, do you believe this? That's the point of this gospel—to present the Christ as the Son of God and present that question to all of humanity. This is like Matthew 16, isn't it? Who do the people say to I, that I am? He's asking the disciples. Oh, you're Elijah. You're John. You're this. Uh. Well, who do you say that I am? Hey, that's getting a little personal, man. I'm I'm getting uncomfortable right now. Can I tell you this is not a real safe space for me? I'm feeling awkward and weird. You need to stop. This is a microaggression. Who do you say that I am? You are the, the Christ, the Son of God. A answer, Peter. That's the right answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood couldn't possibly have revealed that to you but my Father. Glorious. Glorious. Oh, and you know, John 14, verse 6, yeah? The last of the I am, the seven I am statements. I'll start it and you finish it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does he say after that? And no one comes except are you looking forward to going through some of this? Yeah. I can't wait. I'm a, I have to tap the brakes. I mean, every bit of this is so powerful and profound and, and exciting. The miracles, the I am statements. I looked through a number of outlines, and the one I favored uh, is one by a man named John MacArthur. You may not have heard that name before. I actually really favor when it comes to the Son of God, obviously, in that point, I like his outline and how it's laid out. Here's the main headings of it for you, but you'll like this. First, the incarnation of the Son of God, chapter 1, 1 to 18. Second, the presentation of the Son of God, one nineteen to 454. Third, the opposition to the Son of God, 5, 1 to 1250. 4th the preparation of the disciples by the son of god 13:1 to 17:26 that's a high priestly prayer of course 5 the execution of the son of god 18 and 19 chapters 6 the resurrection of the son of god chapter 19 into 21 and finally 7 the conclusion 21 to 24 This is I like it because the the point of this main theme is Jesus is the son of God. So that's a good way of breaking it down. So the purpose of this letter the main theme is Christ that he is the son of God. Secondly, and this is a little bit longer, but you'll see why when we read it together. The revelation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice and resurrection bring the hope of salvation to those that what? Believe. That's the main point. That word believe, (πιστεύω) is used 98 times in this gospel. More times than any other theme in his gospel. That's his point. It's basically saying, look, you've already got a lot of the detailed information about the birth of Christ, his genealogy, all of those kinds of things and other things as well that are omitted in John's gospel. He said, I, I'm going to give you something else. He was actually urged, at least historically in the history, the extra biblical history account is that he was urged on by friends to write a fourth gospel years later. So he's very familiar with with what the other writers wrote. So he's establishing this as a major theme. That's why, I don't know about you, but when I'm witnessing to someone who is very unfamiliar with the gospel and the Bible, I ask them to read that. I ask them to read John. Just read the book of John, because that's its purpose. Not like they can't find Christ. He's throughout the whole Bible. We already made that point. But this is the main reason that John wrote this. John knew him better than any of the other apostles. John was the only one there at the cross. John was the one that Jesus himself entrusted his earthly mother to, yeah? He's like, I'm, you need to write something that comes from your place of understanding. That who Jesus is, you need to drill down on that. Nobody knew him better. And at that point, as we see this progression, we can see a sort of, if you will, a bifurcation happens. Because when the gospel comes, it's polemical, right? It's polarizing. And you will see that as I go through the next outline that I want to show you. So Merrill Tenney, who is a contributor to the Expositor's Bible Commentary, had a great, I thought this was a wonderful um, outline that helps us see the progression and development of the major theme of belief. So let's, let's walk through this a little bit. So first of all, he has the prologue, the proposal of belief. So we looked at MacArthur's outline Making the point of the Son of God, and that's how he broke it down. Tenny is breaking this down with regard to the issue, the main issue of belief. Now that you see who he is, do you believe? Greatest question that it was ever confronted a human being in all of human history. So the proposal for belief: here's who he is. He's the Logos. He's God in human flesh. Verse 14 of chapter one. Right. So it's the proposal. Secondly, is the presentation of belief, chapter 119 to 454. So if you you can just stroll through your Bible and look at the sort of chapter heads and things like that to see what he's talking about here. This will help you sort of organize John in your mind as well. Wedding at Cana, chapter 2, he goes on... um, He's talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, you must be born again, right? Who's he talking to in chapter 4? Samaritan woman, you see that? And that takes us to the end of chapter 4. So that's the presentation for belief. Nicodemus has the questions about being born again. Samaritan woman has questions about um, where should we worship and to whom do we worship? Well, if you knew the person that you're drawing water for... The one to whom you speak is the Christ. And there's coming a time where we won't go to Samaria. We won't uh, go to Jerusalem to worship. But all those who worship God will worship Him how? In spirit and in truth. That's it. So third, he's got the reactions of belief and unbelief. Well, I should say. So you get the presentation of who Christ is, you get that all-important question presented, things start to happen. And that's what goes on from chapter 5, verse 1, where we see the healing at the pool of Bethesda, making Jesus making himself equal with God, the authority of the Son, feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. He goes on there. And then 4 so we 're getting some reactions now now he 's starting to bother people, and he 's starting to draw people right that 's what the gospel does so four he calls it the crystallization of belief and unbelief, so you get sort of um, calcified in your position on this it doesn 't take long. Because it's polemical and it's the most important point ever, people tend to say, I don't believe or I do believe. And then you are on two different trajectories, aren't you? Yeah. So that's chapter 7. As it goes on from there, Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Can this be the Christ? All the way up to chapter 11, we have uh, a questionable portion of text with the woman caught in adultery in chapter eight we 'll talk about that when we get to it um, Nine he heals the man born blind as we talked about an amazing story. I love that story. The Good Shepherd chapter in Chapter Ten. so you can kind of organize this in your mind and 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 you 'll remember that it 's very it 's very memorable chapter eleven that 's the crisis of belief and unbelief now. It's time to pony up. It's time to let me know where you stand. We have a man who's been dead. I'm going to make sure that he's been dead for four days. He's 30 miles away in the Transjordan area when he gets the information. He's sick. Lazarus is a friend of his. His sisters, Martha and Mary, he would hang out at their house. He would dine with them. That's the perfect one to make this demonstration with he didn't go right away. You remember that? He waited to make sure everybody could not argue that this man is dead. Don't open up that tomb, Lord, for he's been in there for four days. You don't understand. So there's a crisis moment there. But now, now things change. Now they want to kill him. They're hardened. They're crystallized in their unbelief. And they can't let it remain. Truth comes and it has to be silenced. Stop talking about him. Anybody who promotes that needs to be thrown in jail at the very least. We need to find him and find a way to kill him. And by the way, we need to kill Lazarus too. Poor Lazarus. How many times will a guy got to die anyway? So that's the end of chapter 11, and then chapter 13 to 17, the assurance for belief. Now, if you want to break the entire gospel down into two sections, this is the end of the first half, or the end of Jesus appealing to Israel as a nation. He turns the corner now in chapter 13, with the Last Supper, now he's focused exclusively on the believers, on his disciples and on those that actually believe. Because he wants to get them trained. He wants to get give them the instruction and the teaching that will sustain them going forward. So he's done with all of those who are rejecting him. He knows his time's coming anyway. He knows that the Father has that well in hand, so I'm going to focus on those that I love. You've given me to love in a special way that have come to save. And that's what he does. So in chapter 13, we see the foot washing. He's saying a new commandment I give you. You remember in verse 34 and 35, he's saying to love one another. He's giving them final instructions. And then he goes on to talk about the advent of the Holy Spirit in verse our chapter fourteen and fifteen, he's talking about the vine and the branches. I am the vine and by the way, that was the f- seventh of the I am statements. Thank you. I missed that one. I am the true vine. I am. And my father is the vine dresser. So now you have it in context. He's focusing now on his disciples in the immediacy and those that have gathered around. How big was his church when he died? <laughs> had a huge church, man. He had a great band. 120. Three years of ministry from Jesus, who is the Christ. His church was 120 people. Why? That's what the truth can tend to do. It can tend to run people off. No, they want to kill him. There's contempt for Him now. Now He's just avoiding them and focusing on those who actually want to hear the truth, who have come to hear the truth. And then that beautiful prayer, right, in chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, beautiful in its regard, to praying for those that He came to die for, praying for His disciples and all those who will come after, which includes whom? You and I? Hopefully, if you know Christ... But now comes the rejection. Number seven, the rejection of unbelief, chapter 18 and 19. You see what happens there. Betrayal of Christ by Judas. He's facing Caiaphas. Peter's denial. It's it's, it's tough reading. Jesus' standing trial. 19, Jesus delivered to be crucified. The crucifixion in 19. But then we get to the good news, don't we? Number eight. I can't wait to get there, although it may be a few years <laughs> if the Lord gives me that much time. I hope so. The vindication of belief. Hey, I'm alive. Whoa. You went to the tomb and you found it empty? That's Peter running to the tomb he's alive he's alive the vindication of belief the dedication of the belief chapter 21 that beautiful scene where he shows up they've gone fishing Peter's like well he's gone Um, turns back to what he knew I'm going fishing. He was a leader. That's why he was always the head honcho. They, well, we're going with you. They all went back to what they knew. They're fishing. Hey, did you catch anything? How's it going out there? Not so good, right? Yeah, cast it on the other side. Haul it in. We're about to have breakfast. Yeah, John's name... The the name, I should say, the name John shows up 22 times in this gospel. 18 times it's referring to John the Baptist. The other four, Simon, son of John. That's what we find in chapter 21, right? Three times? Simon, son of John. Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend to my sheep. Peter restored after his threefold denial. Restored in a threefold way. What a glorious scene. What a hopeful scene. Do we have a tendency to count how many times we fail the Lord? Yeah. His mercy is more, more, more. His grace is greater than all of our sin. Praise the Lord. So I mentioned that there's some things that um, the fourth, fourth gospel uh, doesn't have. And I mentioned those things, the story of Jesus' childhood, the genealogy. It doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount or the temptation in the desert. It doesn't have parables. But it's got a lot of other things. It's got things that the synoptics don't have. The conversation with Nicodemus that we looked at. The conversation with the Samaritan woman. The discourse about the living water. The discourse about regarding Abraham's seed. Healing of the man born blind. The raising of Lazarus. All those things we were just going through briefly. The washing of the disciples' feet, chapter 13, all of that. He was writing things that were exclusive, really, to his knowledge because so much had already been well covered, as I said in the Synoptic Gospels, that had been around for some time, perhaps a couple, two, three decades or more before he finally wrote in the 90s A.D. So it's significant when we note that all of those things that I named that are in the Gospel of John, all have to do with Jesus. See, that's his single focus. He's locked on, and that's who's presented all the way through all 21 chapters. Of the four Gospels, John is arguably the most theological. It's not that these others aren't. It's not that the synoptics are not theological, but his is most theological. As I've said, the most important to me, the most important doctrine in your Christology is handled in a spectacular way throughout. F.F. Bruce said this, that is work, this work which we're looking at now in John's Gospel is the work of the Spirit, he says. It is through the Spirit's operation that William Temple's word so that the mind of Jesus Himself was what the Fourth Gospel disclosed. You know, 1 Corinthians two sixteen tells us that you've been given the mind of Christ. Here, according to Temple, it's revealed. He's speaking here. This word is alive. It's revealing the very mind of Christ. That's that's pretty powerful. So John 20, verse 31, I mentioned the first half of it. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's the purpose of the entire gospel. That's why I like to give that as a reading assignment or suggestion to somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Because the gospel will come and it comes in full force here as the mind of Christ is revealed and it's going to take them one way or the other, as you might have experienced yourself. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, said, This is the high and noble purpose plainly stated by the author. He has given us his deliberate, mature, tested view of Jesus Christ as shown to him while alive and as proven since his resurrection. He writes to win others to like faith in Christ. End quote. Here's the thing, as we're easing this in for a landing, knowing Jesus Christ causes us to love him. If he has taken the time to, through John, speak to you and reveal himself to you and I, it behooves us to know this well, to come to this place, to read, to grow in our knowledge of the true Christ, lest we be found lacking in some way in our Christology and miss it altogether. There isn't anything that's more important. This is the most important question. The more you know someone, the more you love them. That's how this works. It's proportional. Can you imagine if when I got married to Barbara, I said, um, honey, I I love you, but um, we've had this wonderful day together. I should be able to get back to you sometime later on in the week. If I'm not too busy... um, How's, how's your Thursday looking? Because I think, I think we can get together then and I'll listen to what you have to say. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is something to be engrossed in, to be totally submersed in. Because when we are, it stokes the fires of a great affection for Him in our hearts. It assures us that we belong to Him. right? We get to sense His love. We get to sense His presence. We get to sense the approval through Him by the Father. Sin having been forgiven because of Him. The more you love Jesus, the more closely and consistently you will follow Him by keeping His Word. In John 14 or Luke 6 to begin with. Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Loving me means following me. Following me means abiding in my word, agreeing with what it has to say, and yielding yourself to it. That's why... Alan read what he read at the beginning of the service from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, all 176 verses of it, is a man having a love affair with the Word of God. A love affair with his commandments. A love affair with his precepts. A love affair with those things. Why? Because that's who he is. That's how we commune with him. That's how we draw close. What does Isaiah 59 say? Your sins have done what? Separated you from God. It's polarizing. We're drawn close to Him through His Word when we respond to His Word. The only way that I have any assurance that I belong to Him is how I respond to His Word. That was touched on in the first hour in our conversation. That's the only way. How else could you know? Jesus said in chapter 14, If you love Me, what? you'll keep my commandments. It's not, if you love me, keep my commandments, like King James says. It it doesn't sound, it sounds kind of legalistic, kind of stern. We know how afraid of that we are. No, he's saying, if you look at the language carefully, if you love me, you will. Because in loving me, you will follow me. In loving me, you'll make it your business to understand the place of my self-revelation, the place where I'm talking to you right now. Any moment you care to open this up, I'm speaking to you. And you'll say, Yes, Lord, and you'll follow, and you'll follow with gratitude in your heart and delight to obey because you love Him. The only acceptable motivation for doing anything that He says to do is because you love Him. Because you're so utterly grateful to find salvation in Him. I'm glad to do it. I delight to do your will, oh God. So loving him creates this insatiable desire or it should now follow this follow the reasoning here loving him should create an insatiable desire to what read his word and respond to it 1 Peter 2 2 to 3 like newborn infants long for the pure milk uh, the spiritual pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in salvation. Otherwise, your growth is stunted. Life starts not making much sense. You start being irritated by things. You start being afraid of things. You're not content. You're not just a discontent. You're a malcontent. It gets worse and worse. But we grow up. See, nothing's nothing's static, right? Nothing's static. Our sanctification is an effort to walk up a down escalator, right? So if I'm not making that effort, I'm not growing up. I've been focusing a lot these past days. The Lord brings different verses that are applying to whatever season I might be in. He's gracious enough to do that. In Second Corinthians 4 and verse 18... Don't, don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. You can't rely on anything that's transient. It's always changing. Things are always perishing. But the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. Focus on that, Paul's saying. So I try to wrap my my mind around that and hold on to it like a great anchor, a great tower, or a great rock. While everything that's transient, relationships, is constantly changing. The world, the culture, everything. Your health, your finances, everything. Nothing stays the same. Not even for a moment. So why would we trust in those things? Why would we hang all our hope in those things? Those things that are transient. Instead of locking our mind on the risen living Christ, the Son of God, who loves you, came to pay the price for your sin. Why? Because He loves you and He wants to be with you forever. Who? would reject that. Because it costs you what? Nothing. But we give Him everything. My life is His. I, I don't have a whole lot of use for the amusements of this world. He saved my life. He gave me eternal life. Is is this a fable? Is this a myth? Tell me. Don't be cruel. Tell me if I'm wrong. Well, if that's true, what else would I do but give him mine? Instead of spending it on my lusts. So we should have a desire to study the word, to immerse ourselves in the word and that, as it turns out, is directly proportional to how much you love Him. If we say we love Him, and every once in a while when we get around to it, read it, and we have to be honest in that moment to say, you know what, I, I, I feel like I should read the Bible. Okay, where am I to check a box off? Please don't do that. That's happened to me before. More than once. I go in, I habituate, I get up at 5.30, I make the coffee, go in there, sit down. And I'm starting to read and I went... Stop. What would you just read? You have the revelation, the the immediacy of the Word of God. I mean, it's a living Word, living and active, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, the only thing on this planet that can cut to the thoughts and intentions of my heart. This is getting scary. He wants to do surgery? Yeah. Yeah, because He wants you looking like His Son and He has the means to do it. He hung on the cross to make it available to us. This long for, it means strong desire, yearn for, intensely crave, from 1 Peter 2. That is, if you had. Now, this is conditional, right? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Tasted means entering into close, intimate communion with Him. How does that happen? The only way it can possibly happen is for me to immerse myself in this Word, not once a month, not once a week, not when I get around to it, every day. I don't want a day without Him, do you? Then why would we avoid coming to the place where He's speaking to us? It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing rational about our sinfallenness anyway. It's quite irrational. Turn on the news. Listen to what the psalmist says in 119. We had some of it read. Psalm 119, 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold, most expensive metal on the planet. Verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love and I will meditate on your statutes. If we don't understand this principle of what real love looks like, love of Christ and his word and his law and his commandments, what he's telling us to be and to do, this sounds insane. Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Love and law are woven in together. They're inextricably woven in together because it defines, he he defines what love is for us. Because this is the life you were meant to live before sin. Because this is who I am and you are the only creatures on the planet that bear my image and likeness. This is how I get that done. You love me? You'll love my commandments. You want to follow me? That's what it looks like. That's what you'll do. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Okay. How about Joshua 1.8? Some of you have memorized that. It's a great verse, isn't it? This book of the law shall not what? Depart Depart from your mouth. That's right. But you shall meditate on it. So not just read it, right? You're going to meditate on it. I've been up since 324 this morning. And I sense that the Lord wakes me up at those times so that I can do some of this. To pray for the people that he's entrusted to my pastoral care, but also to meditate on his word. Meditate on it day and night. Why? Here's another purpose. So that you may be careful to do. Meditate so that it turns into shoe leather. Respond. This is the way wherein you should walk. And walk ye in that way. Right? Be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Couple more, and we're all done here. Psalm one two. The blessed man who doesn't walk with the wicked or sit in the seat of the scoffers, right? That man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Lord verse two, and his law on his law he meditates day and night, day and night. Sadly, the Jews thought that that happened could happen through some sort of osmosis by tying phylacteries to their forehead and on their wrist and putting a, a, a scripture written on a piece of paper what does god want from us what does he want your heart he wants your heart he wants our heart let the peace of christ rule in your hearts colossians 3:15 to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, that's what the result will be if we do that, if we pray that His word would remain and dwell richly in our hearts. Verse 17, And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's two things that are repeated in all three of these verses. First of all is Jesus Christ, right? Because he's the point of the entirety of Scripture. But also what? Did you catch it? Being thankful. Being thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful. Give thanks. As we journey through this glorious book, and this gospel is revealed to us as Jesus emerges as the Son of God, I hope that you and I will be in fervent prayer, that God will use this to transform us, that it will awaken an insatiable hunger for His Word. It's possible, but you've got to want it pray for it, and do it. I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to Christ himself showing up with us Sunday after Sunday as we work our way through, providentially, this wonderful gospel. I pray you'll join with me in prayer as we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for what it affirms. Thank you even for the things that are difficult to read, that make clear indication of why we need a Savior. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much. I pray that even now, even before we've started the first verse of the first chapter, Lord, that even in this introduction, we're already moved by the Son of God in Jesus Christ. And that if there is anyone in the sound of this message who has been moved in their heart by your Spirit, I pray even now they would simply turn to you and pray, confessing their sin, receiving the forgiveness that remains available to us all, that you might be glorified is our hope. We pray in your son's name. Amen.